If you're interested in the world around you and have a knack for science, you are in for a treat today as we chat with John Heddleston, a senior research biologist. John brings a wealth of experience and a unique perspective on the industry. So whether you're a budding biologist or just curious about what it takes to thrive in this dynamic profession, stay tuned. John's insights are bound to leave you inspired and informed. This is Career Chats with Katie and Robin. Welcome, John. We are so excited to have you on Career Chats today. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I guess our first and kind of obvious question is, how did you find yourself in this job? Was it something you always considered doing or an opportunity you discovered later on? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I find a lot of myself and a lot of my colleagues, we don't ever envision doing what we do now as a research scientist when we're little kids. Uh, it's it's not sort of like one of those jobs you put up on the career board. But I find that, you know, getting here is really not so much necessarily a obvious choice of this is the career I want, but it's more of fostering the ideas of understanding and creativity and sort of wanting to know how things work. And that's sort of the basis of really scientific research in general. And I think as a kid, I knew I had that interest. I wanted to know how everything worked. I wanted to understand why things happened the way they did, or why did this animal behave that way, or why is a turtle that color? And that sort of inquisitive nature evolved over time into this sort of research track type of career path. What sort of requirements are necessary to become a research scientist? In research, I'll first kind of preface it by saying, you know, so my level is a PhD level, which I know we'll, we'll chat about in a minute, but there is a lot of different levels of expertise as well as training where you can still be considered a research scientist. And so it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go through, I don't know, whatever it was, 16, 20 years of schooling to, to be a research scientist. Uh, you can be a great researcher with just curiosity and critical thinking skills. And in every place I've worked as a research scientist, We've had people from all different levels of education, expertise, experience, and oftentimes what that prerequisite means is more of where you are in the process of science. So as an example, let's say you have even just a high school degree, you have a high school degree, you loved your science class and you want to be involved in research. You can get positions to do that, but oftentimes those folks will maybe be doing more of the day-to-day hands-on work at the bench, running assays, collecting the data, and sort of just going more down a task list, let's say, of, of things that need to be done as research staff. But as you increase your level of expertise, expertise in education, you transition more from doing the sort of rote uh, technical data collection into more of sort of thinking of what's the project going to be? How are we directing this project? What does this data mean? And, and how do you take what that data you've learned and turn it into the next experiment? So while, like I said, you don't necessarily need to have any specific prerequisite to be a research scientist, depending on how much uh, independence and self-driven exploration you want to do, the more experience you have, the more leeway you're given to sort of exercise that that curiosity that you have on your own and rather than following what someone else is sort of setting up for you to do. So for you, since you have your PhD, can you tell us a little bit more about the process to obtain your doctorate? Yeah. And so I also, little disclaimer that Getting doctorates in different fields like chemistry or physics, they all may have slightly different requirements because the end point can be different. But as a biologist, the the, the requirements are really just to do a lot of schooling, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but, uh, but the general path that most people take is they'll 
out of high school, often folks that have a curiosity for a researcher for science will continue on to do an undergraduate degree in a science-related field. It doesn't necessarily, you know, let's say as a research biologist, you don't necessarily have to have your undergrad in biology, but it's usually helpful to have it in something that's science-related. It can be engineering, which actually my undergraduate degree was engineering. It was not just strict biology. So I was an engineer or pre-med or medicine. So it's something that's related to the field. It doesn't have to be a specific track. And then after your undergraduate degree, that's where you really need to ask yourself where you want sort of your involvement in science to go. Because there are plenty of people that do a master's degree as a graduate education and then go on to research and do research uh, at any number of either companies or academic institutions. But as I mentioned earlier, it, with a master's degree, you do start sort of start not at the bottom of the totem pole, but somewhere in the middle. So you don't have as much agency in the, in, in the research direction. But if you decide after undergraduate or even after your master's, you can even then say, well, I still want more. I want more training. Then you can sort of move on to this idea of doing the PhD. Now, the great thing about the PhD in general most cases, is that you're often paid a stipend for it. So this the PhD is often not a level of education where you pay out of pocket to take that training. It's often from grants, a university will pay you a stipend to do it. And from there, you have to sort of decide at least a little bit what field of study you want to do, whether it's cancer biology or genetics or plant biology. That's kind of the turning point where you need to kind of identify the general direction of where you want to go, even though at this point you don't need to be locked in, but you need to kind of know the general area. And then you'll start applying to different schools that have programs you're interested in. So for example, myself, I know I wanted to do cancer biology and there are a few schools that had cancer biology programs, but Duke University had a really exciting one. You'll apply to a university and you know how they pick which graduate students can kind of be a black box but generally if you know you'll apply to a few places and then you'll be off, you'll be invited to come for interviews so usually that means you'll travel to the university you'll meet other graduate students in the department as well as a lot of the uh, well I'll say PIs uh, meaning primary investigators meaning the um, uh, research staff members, so the people that are leading the groups in the department, you'll meet with them. You'll usually meet with, you know, administration in the department. The goal here is just to see if it's a good fit. Like, do you like the people there? Do you not? Do, do you feel like the graduate students do things and have fun and, and are doing projects that you like? And then after that, you'll often get an offer and you can pick where you want to go. And the PhD itself can vary. Uh, it can take, you know, four years. It can take seven years, eight years. And that's really variable. Depends a lot on the lab you join. Depends on your own personal motivation and how hard you push to get work out. But the, the overall goal of the PhD program is to further refine your curiosity into how you ask good critical questions, how do you formulate your hypotheses, how do you test those hypotheses, and then turn that into scientific findings that you can publish or get grant money for. Uh, and so that part, being a PhD in the PhD program is highly variable, but that's sort of the general flow. And then after PhD, you can decide where you're going to go, whether it's academia or, or into an industry or do postdocs or something like that. But that depends on the person at that point. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you graduate, though, from a PhD program? Yeah, that's a good question. So that the graduation, or let's just say sort of the minimum requirements to graduate 
it varies a lot depending on the institute. Uh, one thing that should be noted is that for a PhD, especially in the biological sciences, you know, publishing, that, that, well, the phrase is publish or perish, meaning you have to be able to do work that you can publish and get recognition for in the high impact journals, uh, scientific journals, or, you know, government funded grants. So most PhD programs, most of the good PhD programs, I should say, will have a requirement for a graduate student to have a certain number of first author publications. And what that means is uh, in the, if you ever read a scientific paper and you look at the author list, usually there'll be a long string of names. The person that's in the first, in the front of those names, those that's sort of the the research scientist that took on the brunt of the work for the paper. Often there's still collaborations, but that first authorship is is important to denote this is the person that did most of the work on this on this study. And so most PhD programs will require one or two first author publications, at least the good ones will. And some will even require more than that. Some will say you need two first author publications plus, you know, like a review article or, or something like that. But usually that's sort of like the on-paper requirement. The little more nebulous requirement for graduation from a PhD program depends largely on the lab you're in. And what I mean by that is during your PhD, you'll you'll create a thesis committee. And the thesis committee is usually comprised of your PhD mentor, but then also other well-known uh, lab heads or group leaders in your institute. And the purpose of the, of the thesis committee is to give the young graduate student feedback on whether their hypothesis is correct or whether they're interrogating this sort of line of thought properly. And they're there to help develop that graduate student. And so while on paper, you know, maybe it only the, the university may only require, let's say, one first author publication, if the thesis committee does not feel that you are ready or that you've, you've developed enough of your scientific interrogation skills, they can still hold off and not allow you to graduate. Because that's the other thing with PhD programs is that unlike uh, even sometimes a master's program, but certainly for undergraduate degrees, uh, while there is a very a, – uh, specific stepwise, like you have to do three years of this and then two years of this. A PhD program does not have those sort of hard requirements, and it's very dependent on what your committee thinks uh, is necessary for you to say that you are a PhD level scientist. And then usually you have to like defend your thesis, right? Defending the thesis is really sort of taking the culmination of your PhD work and sort of you, you write a thesis, meaning you write this large uh, single document that sort of summarizes everything you did at your PhD. And then you have to present it to a group of peers, plus also, you know, senior research members at the university or the institute. And you sort of defend what you did, why you did it, your thought process. And that's sort of a public demonstration of your skill as a scientist and that you're ready to become, to graduate and become, you know, a, a PhD level researcher. So from your bio, I know you have worked a few different places. And as a biologist, can you tell us like what type of job opportunities are there for students interested in this field? That's one of the hardest things with really being a research scientist in general, but there is a huge variety of positions that qualify as sort of a research type research biologist position. But the question that you really have to ask yourself is the location you want to be in and what do you really want to be doing? So as an example, you can get sort of research biologist level positions at a lot of small companies, small startups, especially if you're in, if you live in like the San Francisco Bay area where they have, are known to have a lot of startup companies, but you know, that job may not be very stable. So that's a, a something you have to ask yourself if, if that's sort of something you 
you are interested in. Uh, the big easy answer would be something like a university. Almost all universities have research labs. And so you can sort of go that typical track of joining someone's lab, either as a postdoctoral researcher, which is sort of this transition period between a PhD scientist and having your own lab, or you can join him as sort of a staff scientist where you're more of a salaried employee and you're sort of working for whoever the lab head is and, and doing the projects they're asking you to do. You could also join a larger industry type of position. That can be a pharmaceutical company or even larger biological research companies. And those are not terribly different as far as the day-to-day -day job goes um, as an academic institution, but sort of the goals are different because obviously with a company, the end goal is that you're producing information, you're making, you're researching a topic that will eventually be turned into a profit-gaining idea or medicine or something, um, whatever your company is doing. I think those are the big ones. There are always tons of like little research position jobs out there that you may not think about. So for example, I had some of my uh, PhD friends, some of them went into medical writing. So, you know, anything you see where someone needs a, a, a article written that ha is much more jargony, let's say, about biology or medicine, it helps to have someone writing those that has some sort of research experience. And so there's a few friends that that's what they did. They went and they worked for a, a company that did medical writing contracts for different organizations. But similarly, you can also, if you're really good at writing government grants, like if you're really good at how to structure a grant, which is a whole other issue. But you know, if you're good at that, you can get a job writing grants for people because people hate writing grants. So you can do that. If you really don't mind if the research you're doing is not your own, you can also do consulting. So work for Deloitte or something where you're a consultant for whoever their clients might be that need some you know, feedback on research direction or project design. And so you can lend your talents to that as well. There are so many potential options out there. There seems to be a huge range of skills and things that you're doing every day. What are the things that no matter what direction you take, you might say is common among all, and maybe you have to keep it to, you know, biology researchers, but what's what's the common thing that they would expect to be able to do day to day? As you mentioned, depending on your research field, it can vary wide. Like a chemist is going to have a different day to day than what a biologist might do. Um, but I'll say from a very, very high level, I think one of the things that you're meant, you're expected to do every day is be very self-motivated. And it, that sounds like a very generic answer. But what I mean is in science, you know, you're expected to drive your own interest. And, and even if you're working for someone where like you sort of have an idea of what your project is, how you approach the problem or how you might try to answer the next question depends on how you want to do it. And so I think the biggest day to day part of what I do is project management, really. It is that self-motivation like, okay, I know A, B, and C. These are the questions we still have, scientific questions that need to be answered. But today I want to, I'm going to prioritize B because I feel like that's the, a good thing to answer. Or maybe, you know, I have part of trying to answer question A requires three steps of incubation in animals or cells or something. And so for the first part of the week, that's not what I'm doing because I have to wait for it to be ready at the end of the week. That's one, I think, vital day-to-day -day skill is just this project management and prioritization of what is important, what is not important, and making sure you're getting the critical experiments done. Because with Anything in science, as you might imagine, you know, you're going to do, re re there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of like, okay, this, ex this experiment worked this time, but I need to repeat it again. And so your day-to-day, -day, yeah, as you said, it's almost impossible to give a specific, this is how each day goes. But the schedule is all based around that prioritization and project management and how you want your day to go and, and how, you know, what meetings you have and what experiments need to be done. And hopefully, 
during your, if someone wants to be a PhD scientist, hopefully during your training, during that time in graduate school, when you're meant to be learning how to do this, you have, you've identified good mentors to teach you the way to have a work-life balance and how to do this project management. Because I think that's also one of the dangers is that because the day-to-day is so up to you that having work-life balance sometimes can be challenging because you know, you can always do another experiment. Mm. You know, it does like, it, you know, cells don't know what time it is. The mouse mice don't know really know what time it is. You can always do more each day. And so knowing where your balance is in life is an important part of it. And, you know, there are some people that, you know, they really, really love being in the lab and they will work 12, 15 hours a day because they like to. There are some folks that, you know, they have a very defined balance between this. These are my working hours and these are my home hours. So uh, there's, a, and there's a lot of that time management, project management that's necessary to, for that day-to-day flow. Wow. Awesome. I love that. But can you tell us what your favorite part of the work is that you do and also the least favorite? The favorite part is that oftentimes when you're doing your research, the the data you're seeing, the results you're getting, you're often the first person to ever see that, right? Because you're asking this question, the data, the images you get, you know, most of the time no one has ever seen that in that specific way. And I think mm-hmm. that feeling of discovery and that excitement of, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is something brand new, can kind of foster new questions, new thinking. And that kind of excitement is sort of can kind of steamroll and, and help really build up that motivation to to really ask new questions. But at the same time, it also kind of goes hand in hand with some of the the harder parts of the of the job in that having as i mentioned before having a balance is really important because it's very easy to get really caught up in the excitement of what's going on next or or what's the next experiment and to not to lose that balance of of what's work and what's not work as i said the experiments are always there the the cells are always there the mice are always there and you can work yourself, you could work 18 hours a day, you know, and you can certainly keep going, but that you're probably going to burn out pretty quick. That's the other thing to, to identify when you're think, when you're looking for positions or jobs is how much does your management above you value that balance? Because one thing to note is that as you go higher up in a research organization, you're often a salaried position, so you're not getting paid by the hour. And so many times you may have management that asks you to work 10, 12 hour days because it, you're being paid the same, but they want that data faster and faster and faster and faster, especially in an, in an environment where you may be competing with other companies to try to come out with a medicine or something first. So that can be a real downside of the job that, you know, it, it gets stressful and you can feel burnt out because it, without proper boundaries, it can be exhausting. Um, I'll say with that too, just sometimes experiments don't work. Right. You may have a really great idea and you're so excited that this idea is going to be fantastic. And then you go through the experiments and it just, it doesn't work. Your hypothesis was wrong or something was wrong. And so that too can also sometimes be hard because it feels defeating of like, oh, I, I thought I knew what I was what was going to happen here. And I thought my hypothesis was right, but it's not. And so you have to have the ability to learn from what didn't work and, and not take it personal and not get too down about it and continue on to do the next experiment the next day. I love that. That's great advice too. You've talked about people who are able to manage their time and critical thinking. What other skills do you think are necessary for people to enter this field? As you said, project management, time management, those critical thinking, those are the big, like everybody needs 
needs that. I think the other thing I'm going to say, it may depend on the person. I really think it's really important to be, <laughs> to be nice and to be collaborative. Mm. Some people in research, you know, they take a little more aggressive approach of like, I need to further my research goals and I don't care like who gets in my way. I need to, I need to further my goals. But in general, I mean, there are some people like that that are successful. There are Nobel Prize winners that I've worked with that are generally not bad people, but they are very aggressive in getting what they want. And it doesn't, they don't always want to sacrifice their time to help somebody else. But I think in general, it makes the environment a lot more pleasant. And I think you make a lot more network connections, a lot more collaborations. If you're nice and you're understanding and you, you know you, you, you want everyone to succeed, those are generally the better environments to do research in. And I think that's often too, whenever you are you know looking for a lab to join or a company to join, assessing how collaborative is the environment. Does everyone want everyone to succeed? Or is it very cutthroat where whoever gets that research done first, they win, everybody else loses. Th- those are those are like, I think an important thing to think about an important skill to have. So how does what you're doing now fit into like your projected career path is what you're doing now what you want to plan to do forever? Are there obvious next steps for you? As far as the whole career path, as I kind of alluded to at the beginning, you know, being a, re- a PhD level scientist has a lot of different variations on where you might go. And especially because I did not pick the traditional academia I'm going to be a PI and then retire kind of thing. You know, I did, I, I like doing science and where I'm where I am at now it does some really cool stuff and you know, I hope to be here for a very long time, but things can change in science, things things may move and shift and and that requires a flexibility of just well, what do you really like of the job? I try not to get tied down to specifically to like, oh, this I have to do this kind of research at this kind of place because a lot of these inst- institutes or or companies have a lot of cool stuff going on. So, yeah, sorry, it's not it's kind of a non-answer a bit, but it, I think that flexibility is just part of being a scientist. And and some people may have more of a really hard set. Like this is, I want to be a very famous PI or something, which is great. And people, people do that. Um, But me personally, it's, it's sort of, I want to be doing science and really fun science. And hopefully that's where I'm at now for a long time, but you never know what the future might hold. Mm -hmm. So what benefits beyond pay does the job offer? Flexibility. You're your own sort of designer of how you want your day to go. And so I think that flexibility is really nice that you can kind of set your structure, your time structure, how you want. Uh, You can sort of design and set up the experiments how you need to. Now, of course, this does vary a bit depending on your skill level, your experience level and what institute you're in. But in general, there's a lot of flexibility. And and I think it, it gives you a nice sense of, of, of agency and what you want to do. The other neat thing, I think, depends on, again, depending on your job, but science is very collaborative and it's also a, a worldwide endeavor. And so I've had a lot of opportunities to travel to different countries and talk about my work, meet people from different countries. And so there's a lot of that really fun interaction between different cultures, different backgrounds. And so you get a lot of, of exposure to a lot of different things as part of your job, which is really cool. Like it's not, you know, you don't have to feel like I do the same thing every day. There's a lot of different opportunities that come and go. Most researchers are going to attend scientific conferences. And at conferences, you get to meet all these people and talk about your work. Um, So yeah, so the flexibility, being able to collaborate and meet a lot of new people is is a huge benefit to this. And I think depending on where you are, you do have a lot of other side things like you may find out or, or about new research before anyone else hears about it, or you may have the inside track on discussions of people that are doing really cutting edge stuff that you might see in the news. And sometimes if you're lucky, like I said, I've been fortunate enough that you get to work with some really high profile people, Nobel laureates that have done some amazing research in their in their day. And you get to like learn from that as well. You get to learn from a lot of different experiences and backgrounds that help develop 
who you are as a person and as a scientist. That's so cool. I also feel like meeting people and traveling, like you mentioned, probably can help with the connections piece and where you would want to go after where you currently are too. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, something with science is to be very flexible and sort of open to change. And as you said, you get to meet these people from all around the world. So it's not nearly as challenging, let's say, if I really wanted to, I don't know, to, to find a research position in Germany or something. There's easier ways to make those connections and to find other positions and opportunities anywhere in the world because, you know, science is still science, even if you're in the U.S., or in a different country. So finding those common grounds, finding collaborators overseas, you have a lot of flexibility and opportunity there, depending on what you want to go for. And I think that's the other part of it too, is that you don't have to do that, but you can if you really want that kind of opportunity and flexibility. Yeah, that's really cool. So do you think there will be more or less opportunities for people to do this work in the future? I think as general, like just in the vague sense of research scientists, I think there are plenty of opportunities and more always coming up because as our society evolves there, you know, for example, 15 years ago, no one was doing real, really AI research, right? But that's a big thing now. So as that evolves as new things and new fields come about, there will always be new research opportunities. Now, I'll say, at least in the US, the flip side of that is that the, as I mentioned, the funding line with federal grants can vary and, and generally is really tight. There was a period, especially during my graduate career, where the funding line was really, really low, meaning, it, you know, let's say like 3% or 2% is a very common funding line. And so, if two, meaning 2% of the people that apply for a grant are going to get it. And that can get lower, especially as, as funding and costs rise elsewhere. So, you know, I don't want to say that there's any less of those jobs, but it, it can be more challenging in the future to get these federal grants. Uh, so you may have to be open to these other opportunities that might be occurring in different fields than what you may be expecting. Sure. That makes sense. So what would you tell someone who's thinking about entering the field? Uh, so I would say really think about what interests you and what excites you about science, and whether it's chemistry or physics or biology. It's kind of a, a universal, like think about what gets you excited about it. What do you like? Because at its heart, you know, research is about understanding and critical thinking and learning. And so if you don't have in, if you don't find enjoyment in that sort of learning and, and that kind of work, it may be a lot harder to, to enjoy a research career. You've told us a lot of good things now, but is there anything else you would want our listeners to know about becoming a biologist? I think the one thing I would say, which I kind of said a few times, I think, throughout our interview here is research and being a biologist happens in a bunch of different ways. So try not to have a preconceived notion of exactly the path you have to take, but also be honest with yourself. And, you know, let's say you do an undergrad and you're like, oh, like trying to do research, that's just, that, that's not something I like, you know, then don't do it. Don't become a research scientist because a family member says you should do a PhD or you think that's going to be prestigious or something. You need to do it because you want to do it. Being a research scientist doesn't always pay the best. Sometimes it pays well, sometimes not very well at all. So you have to be doing it for the actually enjoying it. Really think about it and be honest with yourself if that's something you want to do. Great advice. Thank you so much for coming on Career Chats with us, John. This was really insightful. And I think our future biologists will really appreciate this episode. So yeah. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great questions. And I hope this is uh, helpful for, for those future scientists out there. Awesome. Bye. Career Chats is hosted by Katie Huddleston and Robin Coney. Show notes and guest info can be found on our website, careerchats.show. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, stay curious.